And then we'll spend a little bit of time in the word this morning. Father, we thank you so very much for your son, Jesus Christ, who's come and died on the cross for our sins. Uh, We're so very, very thankful that you've given us your word. We ask that as we open your word, that your spirit would be our teacher. And uh, as he teaches us and as he leads us and as he guides us, may we uh, lead a life that is pleasing to you, that's honoring and glorifying to you. We just ask for uh, hearts that are ready to listen. Uh, Be with me, please, as I share your word, that I may share your truth accurately and in a way that's understandable. We are just so very thankful for everything you blessed us with in your son, Jesus Christ, and it's based upon him and his promises and his authority that we say, amen. So there once was a town, it's a made-up story, so you can pick whatever town you want, uh, but it was a town, and the electricity went out on the town. Oh, no. And so the mayor called the electrical engineers and said, guys, we need to get this fixed right away. After a couple days, they couldn't get it fixed. The electricity was still out, so they hired other guys uh, who had a lot of degrees and knew a lot of things, and after a couple days, they also could not fix the Uh, the lack of electricity. So uh, in the midst of the mayor just really beside himself on how do we solve this issue, one employee said, there's a guy outside of town. Uh, I mean, he doesn't have the degrees that the other guys do, but, you know, he was an electrician back in the day. Maybe we could ask him. And the mayor said, no, he never went to school. He doesn't know anything. Eventually they asked the guy, And the guy says, I will come and I will fix it for you. And he shows up to the power plant with just a wooden mallet. And all of the electrical engineers laugh at the man and say, what are you going to do with a wooden mallet that we couldn't do for the past week? Guy walks over to one of the generators, kind of looks at one of the places, uh, pulls a piece of paper out of his pocket, looks, taps twice on the generator, and the electricity comes back. Amazing. The man sent a bill to the mayor, and this is what the bill said. I am charging you only $1 for my labor. However, I am charging you $10,000 for knowing how to read blueprints and read the manual for the generator and the application of my labor. See, that's what wisdom is, right? Wisdom is not so much just knowing a lot of stuff. It's knowing and then applying to the situation, right? And that electrician showed wisdom. He was able to apply what he knew to the situation to fix it. That, that's what we've been dealing with in the book of Proverbs, as we've been going through Proverbs these past two years, is wisdom. And, and what is wisdom? We are finally coming to the end of the largest section of the book of Proverbs, starting back in chapter 10. We've made it all the way to chapter 22, uh, and by God's grace, we'll finish this section this morning. And in this section, once again, we have this contrast between the wise person, what a wise person does, and a fool. Okay? And that's what Solomon's doing, is he's showing the two. Here's what a wise person does. Here's what a fool does. And so this morning, he's, he's going to be sharing with us what does it mean to be wise. This is kind of the, the, the end. This is the, the end of this section, and it's kind of a, a really nice summation of what we've been studying the past year and a half. 
dealing with how to be wise. What does it mean to be wise? And this morning, we're going to see three things. In verses 7 through 9, we're going to see to be wise means that we're discerning and compassionate. To be wise is to be discerning and to be compassionate. We're going to see in verses 11, or 10 and 11, that to be wise means to make the right associations or the right associates, right? To, to, to associate with the right people. And then in 12 to 16, what we're going to see is to be wise means that you're going to make the right kind of commitments. So 7 through 9, it's compassionate. 10 and 11, it's associates. 12 through 16, it's commitments, right? Those are the things. So, so to be wise, you're going to, be, you're going to focus on these things. Now, I, I will say this, that this section does seem to end with a note and a strong implication on these are the types of truths that we should be teaching our children, right? So in verse 6, what we spent last week on, verse 6 of chapter 22, says, train your children the way that they should go. And then it's bracketed then by 15, in verse 15, where it talks about the folly is bound up in the heart of a child. And so there's this bracket. And in between that is a discussion of what does that mean to teach children? And what are some of the things that we want to drive out of our children, right? What what are some of those sinful ways? What are the things we want to promote what are the things that we, we don't want them to have in their life? And so there's going to be some implication here on raising children and the things that we should be saying to children, the types of lessons that we should be teaching children. So let's first look at to be wise is to be compassionate, that we need to, uh, wise people are compassionate, empathetic, and they have Christ-like love. Also, this is something that children need to know, is to be compassionate towards one another, Right? But just notice what is said in verse 7, right? The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is a slave of the lender. So, once again, this is nothing new. We've already seen this proverb before, or or the same principle. The the idea is that the rich uh, really dominate their tyrants over. Uh, This is is not the, the best kind of governance that the rich have over the poor, And the second part of the parallelism kind of helps us understand the first part, right? So the second part kind of has this idea that there was some money lending, right? That somebody came and and asked for money and borrowed money and the rich gave to the poor and then uses that as leverage to have this extortion (laughs) uh, uh, to, to, to dominate, to be a tyrant over, do not look at this as like this is Solomon saying this is a good idea for rich people to be uh, in charge of poor people. No, th- this is a bad thing, uh, what the rich are doing here. And th- this is something that we got to be careful of. The, the Bible speaks a lot about this. And even in the New Testament, uh, James deals with this subject of rich, wealthy believers and their dealings with uh, some poorer believers. And, and James, you find this strange conundrum where you have James saying, can, can you really say you're a believer and that you're walking by the power of the Spirit if you promise to pay somebody and then you never pay them? 
Like, not, we're not talking about giving them good wages. We're talking about not even giving them wages at all. But you're concerned about your bottom line, so you get this whole bunch of free labor from your Christian brothers and sisters. You don't pay them, and you're, get, and you're worried that you're not making enough money. And, and James says, can you really say that's Christ-like love? Can you do that to another human being and extort somebody and say, this is the way Christ would conduct business? Of course, the, the answer is not. That's where James would say, uh, you, you can say you have faith, but you need to show that that faith actually has something behind it. And so here, th- this is a problem that's plagued everyone for as long as there's been people and sinners, right? Some people taking advantage of others. And so there, there's, kind of this, uh, there, there's kind of this critique of the rich as they, as they are tyrants over the poor. And then you have then the second part, which is kind of, a, uh, kind of a warning, right? But it says, but a borrower is a slave to the lender. So you almost get this sense of, on the one hand, it cuts against the rich person that would be a tyrant over the poor. And then it's kind of saying to, to somebody who's poor, be careful about borrowing money. Now, this is not just an economic lesson. And if you walk away from this saying, well, that's a great economic lesson, then you're not, you're not with it, right? You're not with the book. Because you've got to remember, the undertow of everything in this book is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We as believers are to be free to serve the Lord. We are to be good stewards of our money, and we are to be compassionate and kind. It is possible for us to put ourselves in a position where our sole allegiance is not to the Lord or to put ourselves in a situation where we are not good stewards of what he's given or that we now have to start serving someone else. The Apostle Paul in Romans 13 tells believers to owe, to owe people nothing except for love, right? So the idea is, is th- th- this is part of wisdom and discernment of how to navigate through life and God's given us a mind, and, and he's given us his wisdom, and, and we need to be careful about our money and how we spend our money and how we, how we get money and how we borrow money. Now, this is not saying that it's, all, that it's wrong every time to borrow money. I don't want you to walk away saying, Pastor says I can't borrow any money at any time for any reason. But I think this is at least a warning to say you should at least think about it, right? Think about the implications and the consequences of lending money. And I would say this, if it's for a necessity, then you should consider maybe borrowing money. But if it's for a luxury, don't become a slave for luxury, right? That is foolishness, okay? So notice then, then you have this rich guy who's, who's ruling. And this, this concept of, of the slavery and ruling kind of bleeds over in the next verse. Because notice what it says in verse 8. It says, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fall. So here you have uh, this agricultural term of sowing seeds. And the, the idea of sowing injustice here would be the, the sense of anything that's deviate, deviating from God's law, anything that's deviating from the proper way of how you're supposed to treat others. In fact, this, this idea of injustice and, and the things that are covered in the idea of justice from the book of Proverbs that we've seen so far deal with things from like a courtroom. So, for example, judges, the way that judges 
uh, say their verdicts, the, the accusers of a crime, the verdict, witnesses, all of those things can, can easily be uh, uh, manipulated and justice cannot prevail if you have a corrupt judge, for example, or corrupt accusers or a corrupt verdict, right? That, that, that's a sense of injustice. Judicially, it's, in, it's, it's, it's not right. And it's clear that, as we've seen before, that the rich are willing to give bribes, right? And so that is a blinding of justice. That's an injustice. So somebody who is willing to do something like that and is constantly doing those types of things, like something that's illegal, that, that's not just, if they're constantly doing that, the, the principle is that they will, they will reap the calamity, right? So they're sowing. They want an investment. What are they getting for their investment? They're getting calamity. They're not getting wealthier, Injustice could also go from society of how we treat people, right? Obviously, the verse right above it, uh, being a tyrant over another person, that's not, that's not just, that's not good, it's not wise. We've seen uh, a lack of justice in boundaries, right? Remember, uh, in the ancient world, boundaries was basically a stone, and people who didn't have, uh, weren't guided by God's wisdom could easily just go by the stone and kick the stone and Guess what? Just by that simple kick, now you have a little bit more land, right? Really simple thing to do. Uh, th- that, that's wrong. Changing boundary stones would be wrong, and even in business, these things would be wrong. So, so the sense is, is that here's this guy who's, who's sowing injustice, and, and what will happen? Bad things will happen. Calamity will happen. Ruin will happen. And then you get to the end of the second part of the parallelism, which is maybe a little difficult. It says, and the rod of his fury will fail. So the question is, who, whose rod are we talking about here? Well, obviously, it's the one who's sowing iniquity. And what do we mean by rod? What does it mean when it says he has a rod? The, the idea of a rod is like a staff, and, and, and a staff was, was kind of seen in the ancient world as a sign of authority, uh, a sign of punishment, right? You would use a staff to keep sheep in line, and so he who holds the staff is the ruler, right? He's the one that has the authority. It's a sign of authority, and it was the, the sign of punishment. And so you could get from this that the, the guy who's sowing iniquity is the rich guy who's ruling over the poor in verse 7. So this one is using his authority, and, 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 and he's, he's coming at these people with fury, with anger, with indignation, it has, it has the sense of a tyrant, right? It's somebody who's, who's ruling over people with an iron fist and extorting people. I mean, notice what it says. It says, that will fail. So he, he, if he sows iniquity, he'll come to calamity. His rod of fury will fail. It's not a good thing. This, this lack of compassion is not a good thing. God does not pleased when we extort people and when we're tyrants to people and when we're demanding In fact, the contrast is then found in verse 9. It says, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Uh, I like this word here in the Hebrew for a bountiful eye. Uh, As we've noticed in Hebrew is going through the book of Proverbs, sometimes it's really difficult to give one definition for a Hebrew word. There's no English equivalent. The word really is good eye. The person has a good eye. And the idea is that the eye looks towards good things. 
And so the sense of a bountiful eye is the idea that the, the person has uh, an outlook on life that's looking for good for others. And so in this sense, when you couple it with the sharing of bread, it has the idea of someone who is generous. So we could, we could say a generous person right, will be blessed. God loves it when we're compassionate and we're empathetic. And, and I think that even the people who were compassionate and empathetic towards also appreciate this. And so there's not only a blessing from God, a divine blessing for this, but I think there's a societal one. And it says, for he shares his bread with the poor. The word here for bread just means food. So, so it's one who, who, whether he has a lot or not, he shares what he has with those who do not have or are incapable of providing for themselves. That's that's the sense. Here, here's the one who's sharing. I just want to give a quick note. I think it's really important for us as believers to be compassionate, empathetic, always looking to be helpful, always looking for the, looking at a way of how can I build up my brothers and sisters around me? What, what are opportunities that I, I come across throughout the week that I can share the gospel? And, and how can I help people? But I think we as believers sometimes fail that we, we're so gung-ho to help and we think that help always looks like one thing. That sometimes our help can reinforce, encourage uh, bad behaviors and sinful lifestyles. Uh, I know that we all have met several people that have what has been today called enablers. You're enabling them, right? As you're helping them, you're actually not really helping them. You're just giving them resources so they can continue on in what they're doing. Biblically speaking, we should have compassion and empathy towards everyone because everyone is made in the image of God. That's really good. How we help them requires discernment, and it doesn't always look the same, right? In some situations, that does mean we give money. In other situations, that may mean, no, we're going to teach you how to help yourself, okay? So this is a wide gamut of what this looks like. But the core principle that I think is really important for us as believers is that we are compassionate and empathetic because we see people as being made in the image of God. We need to have that. It's, it's apparent from this text, at least the implication to me is, that the rich thinks he's better than the poor, therefore he has the right to do what he's doing because he's better. That's not how Christians should ever think. We are not better than anyone else. The only reason that we are here, the only reason that we can sing hallelujah to the Lord Jesus Christ because of his salvation is because of his grace. We need to remind ourselves we are not first-round picks. No one in this room is a first-round pick. We are saved by the grace of God, and we need to be reminded of that. And the people who do not know the Lord, what do they need? They need the grace of God as well. And we need to be compassionate and empathetic towards them. This is wisdom, right? I think it's important that we teach our kids this. Teach them compassion and empathy. Teach them wisdom, discernment on how to show that. But definitely show them this underlying principle that all men are made in the image of God. All women are made in the image of God. And therefore, they are equal regardless of color, what part of the town they're born from, their parents, their economic status. That stuff doesn't matter They're made in the image of God. And therefore, there needs to be always compassion and empathy towards them. 
Now, there's, an, there's another thing. Notice the next thing in verse 10 and 11. It's about choosing the right associates. It's interesting because this is what wisdom is, and we've definitely seen this principle, and I think Solomon kind of does a nice summation here. He says, drive out a scoffer, and strife will go away. Quarreling and abuse will cease. So here the word for drive out a scoffer literally means to kick him out of town, banish him, no more, get out. You're no longer welcome here. The principle is is that you should not associate with and you should try as hard as you can not to be associated with scoffers and that you should try to not have scoffers in your immediate circle of friends. Now, I know that sometimes uh, people may make bad decisions, end up marrying someone that maybe is not the smartest idea, and then they wake up and realize, oh, I married a scoffer. What am I supposed to do here? And I suppose you could improperly look at this and say, well, see, I'm supposed to kick this one out of the house. That is not what is being said here. And unfortunately, this happens a lot. And my advice would be, I am so sorry, but you need to live for the Lord in that situation. And you need, you need to be righteous in that situation. That, that is the situation that the Lord has you in. And if that person is mocking you, scoffing because you believe in Jesus... You need to continue to live and, and, and live for Jesus. You should not return insult with insult. You should pray for that person's salvation and live for the Lord. That's what you should do. But this is a principle of friends, right? Associates. Don't hang out with scoffers. And remember, a scoffer is the worst of the worst. This is the worst guy. This is, this is, the, this is the fool that, that invents folly. He, he's the one who scoffs. He's the one who mocks. He, he's the one who has the, 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 the dark heart. He, he's not submissive. He doesn't want to be submissive. There's never an inkling in his mind of submitting to God and to his word. He makes fun of all those who do submit. And so the, Solomon says, drive him out. Get, get rid of him. Right? Don't, don't have him around you. And guess what happens when you drive out a scoffer? Something magical happens. There's like Mary, there's like a fairy dust that, that goes over the situation, right? When the scoffer leaves, guess what also leaves? Strife will go out. Well, go figure. You kick out the guy who's causing arguments, and guess what? You don't have any more verbal arguments. Amazing. Right? That's remarkable. There's no more yelling matches. Wow. It just shows that the one who is not living by God's law, not submitting to the power of the Holy Spirit, wants to cause division and lives by the flesh. The flesh causes dissensions. When you get away from people who are fleshly, guess what? Those fleshly dissensions are no longer in your life. It's really important, especially for kids, right? Especially for young adults. Picking friends... Sometimes it's really cool to have a scoffer in your friends, right? Somebody you talk to once a week and they're a scoffer and you kind of get, you kind of think, that's kind of fun and edgy. I got a scoffer. Really into the cool music and stuff. It's really important that you realize this is bad. It's bad. This, they will have a greater influence on you than you will on them. And the, in, and the problems that come with a scoffer 
are constant arguments. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like living in a place where there's constant arguments. But notice what else it says. It says, and quarreling and abuse will cease. This word for quarreling could be used for lawsuits, right? So the scoffer leaves, and guess what? Lawsuits are no longer there, right? There's no longer these huge battles where they're trying to go, trying to get everything from you. And abuse, this is the word for insults, right? Insults, mocking. And so the sense is, is that we as believers should have close association with those believers who are like-minded and are wanting to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. If we don't, and we fill our lives full of people that are living by the power of the flesh, guess what's going to be full? Guess what we're constantly going to have? We're going to have the drama of strife. We're going to have the drama of lawsuits. There's going to be insults and mocking, right? Now, sometimes we have to come in contact with these people. But I think the principle here is be careful who you associate yourself with. And a scoffer is one that you want to get rid of. But then notice this next one, verse 11. It says, but he who loves purity of heart. This isn't who loves those who are pure in heart. It would be easy to read that. But it's who loves purity of heart. Speaking of themselves, right? Who, who, who wants to be singularly devoted to the Lord, to following his word. That's the idea here. And, no, and then notice the next part, and whose speech is gracious. This is a person saying the right thing at the right time with the right, with the right tone. So this person who, who takes God's word to heart, applies it, is, is able to control his speech, has self-control, notice it says we'll have the king as his friend. Once again, this is not a piece of advice of how to make powerful friends, right? This is, this is saying this is an honorable thing. An honorable thing will happen when you do this, when you're solely dedicated to the Lord. You're solely dedicated to doing what's right and pleasing him. And, and, and then you think, okay, how do I say things to people in the right way, in the right tone, right? Those type of people, this is an honorable thing. And, and these are the type of people that gain friends. They don't lose friends, they gain friends. And, and this type of person is concerned about the fear of the Lord because, because you see that word purity is concerned with that singular devotion. I would think this is what the Lord would want for us as believers and as a church that when they would talk about us, our testimony would be, well, that person is devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ and they are very gracious in the way that they say things. They word things right. They say things in the right way. This is wisdom, right? This is wisdom. Now, there's this, this last section in verses 12 through 16. And it's the right commitment, okay? It's having the right commitment. It's easy to be committed to a lot of things today. I'm sure it has always been easy to be committed to a lot of things. But it is very easy for us in our climate, especially with the rise of social media, where we can describe ourselves in two sentences. And we can say what we think about a subject in two sentences. We post a picture this is what I think. This is who I'm for. We can describe our politics in bumper stickers, right? This is the climate we live. It's easy for us to get signed up to commitments so that people know, well, I'm for this, I'm for that, I'm for this. And though there's a lot of things for us to be committed to, and there's a lot of causes that I think are righteous in today's world, 
I would say that if we're not known for our commitment for the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have failed. Right? If they know us for other things other than Jesus Christ, we are not doing a good job. We should be known for our commitment to the word and commitment to Jesus. If that means there's other commitments that that come along with that, great. Unfortunately, so many times people go to church and they're known for other things because of their other commitments, their other affiliations. No, I think the Lord would want us solely devoted to him and to be known for our commitment to him, right? So, so, so notice what, what is said here. So verse 12 it says, The eye of the Lord keeps watch over, tr- over knowledge but he overthrows the words of the traitor. It's interesting that in this, in this last four or five verses, Solomon reminds us that God is, has a vested interest in knowledge, in truth, in knowledge of him. And, and just notice that phrase, the eyes of the Lord keep watch. So the eyes of the Lord speak of his omniscient, sovereign watching over the world, Right? It has this idea of his observing, and he's seeing all things, right? So it speaks of him being everywhere, observing all things, knowing all things. Okay, that's what it speaks of. He sees it. So it's the eyes of the Lord, this omniscient, sovereign one who knows, this all-seeing one, right? This one who's everywhere, omnipresent. This one, the eyes of the Lord, notice, keep watch. The idea is like a sentry, Someone, someone that's standing guard, protecting something that's very valuable. That's the sense. So here's the Lord, the one who's sovereign, the one who's omnipresent, who's omniscient. He stands. He stands as a guard to protect knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of himself and knowledge of his will. He protects this book. He has a vested interest in protecting this. Amen. I think throughout all of history, all of the things that have been written, all of the ways that things can easily get lost, and God has preserved for us for thousands of years these 66 books that we have in front of us. He's preserved this truth. He always has a remnant. He he protects it. Amen. They can do what they want. Others can do what they want to try to discredit or, or, or cause us to forget about it or to lose it or to change it. But he has a vested interest in protecting his truth. Okay? So what happens to the one who, who breaks their commitment, who, who, let's say, claims to be a follower, but then breaks away and then tries to lead people away from the knowledge of God? What happens then? Well, notice the next part. But he overthrows the words of a traitor. You see that word traitor? Has the idea of somebody who's made a commitment, made a very strong commitment, made a very strong commitment before God, and then said, I'm doing the opposite. Right? That's the idea. Right? And notice, he overthrows, causes to completely reverse. The, The thing that they wanted to have happen with their words, the opposite will happen with the words of a traitor. There are people who are traitors. And they say a lot of things against the knowledge of God and the will of God. The principle is God will overthrow them. Now this looks 
different in a lot of situations. And I think for the, the rest of this, this, this section kind of shows those examples of how, how traders use their words. And then, and then there's then this, in the middle, this, this, this striking uh, principle for, for parents to say, look, you have to understand that there's a lot of folly in children, and it's your job to drive that folly out of them, meaning you have a commitment to the Lord, not only to yourself, but also in your children as well. Right? So there's examples of this is what happens in the words of traitors, and then here's the responsibility of those who are committed. So notice some bad examples of the traitors. Right? This is what happens to the traitors. Notice verse 13, comical. Right? The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Now the first question is, who is the sluggard saying this to? The implication is the guy who's telling him to go get a job. Right? The guy says, go get a job. So this guy then gives an excuse, and the excuse is comical. We might not think it's comical, but it's hilarious. His excuse is, number one, there's a lion outside. How does he know? He doesn't go outside. Right? By definition, a sluggard is not one that's outside working. So how does he know there's a lion outside? It is a figment of his imagination, right? He has made this up. There's a lion outside. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Let's say we go outside and there's a cougar in the parking lot. It's okay to be afraid of a cougar, right? I mean, they're dangerous. So, I mean, it's kind of a real threat. But if we just all of a sudden said, we're not leaving this building because there's a possibility in the realm of possibilities that there's a cougar in the parking lot. So we just got to sit here. That's crazy. It's insane. But that's what the sluggard does. He's giving this crazy outlandish excuse. And then, and then it's interesting. He says, and if I go out, I shall be killed in the streets. The, the, the implication is that as these people are living in a city that's walled to protect themselves from dangers, that this one will go out into the street, find a lion in the street, and the lion will kill him. And then he's accusing the one of telling him to get a job, saying, you're the one that sent me out there, right? Because that's the implication. There's a lion in the street, and I shall be murdered. It's not, it's not just that the lion's going to kill me. The sense is the guy who's telling them to get a job is saying, you watch, there's a lion out there. I'm going to get eaten. It's all your fault that I'm dead. Hilarious. It's just made up. That's the type of words of a traitor. They're made up. They're, they're, they're not real. And, and, it caught, and it's excuses for them not to do what God's asked them to do. Right? I just make up a reason. And then, and then notice what else in, in the, the subtle implication is. I think that the sluggard is saying, and you're the one that wants me dead. By you asking me to go out and get a job, you want me dead because a lion's going to kill me. It's questioning the motive. So one is asking them to do what God asked them to do, and they say, no, there's reasons why that are made up that I'm not going to do, and I'm questioning your motives whether you really care about me. You see how devastating that is? You see how that type of mindset of that I can make up anything I want and question people's motives, therefore I'm not going to do what God wants me to do? It's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. Notice the next one, verse 14. It says, the mouth of, uh, f- 
of a forbidden woman is a deep pit. The word for forbidden woman is strange woman. Uh, The sense of a strange woman is anyone that you're not married to, right? That's the idea of a strange woman here. It it speaks of one who is very uh, loose morally, if you catch my drift. One, One who wants to have an affair and wants to commit adultery. And, and, and it's saying the words, the words, the way she phrases her words, the way she talks, right? And, and notice that it's these forbidden women. So it's, so it's like this collection of women and the way that they talk and the way they seduce. The, their mouth, the way that they say things, the way that they look is a deep pit. It's a trap. It's a trap and you can't get out. It's impossible to get out. And then Solomon adds what makes it even more difficult. He says, he with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it. Now, this is a really difficult phrase. I think this is similar to what Paul talks about in Romans 1, where he talks about how there are people who are given over to sin. The sense is that they sin, and they continue to sin, they continue to sin, they continue to want that sin. And one of the punishments that God has for them is says, you really want that that's really what you want, have it. And he does nothing to stop them. He turns them over. It's very similar to what what happened with Pharaoh when it says that God hardened his heart. He allowed Pharaoh to continue to deny the Israelites to flee Egypt, right? He he did that. He, 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 He gave them no opportunity to change, right? He just said, you want that sin, have it. And the sense is that there are people that, that struggle with this sin, they want this sin, they want this sin, they want this sin, they want this type of sin, and God says, you're done, have it, it's yours, you're going to live in it, and you're going to be stuck, and it's a terrible, terrible, nasty trap. But notice, it starts with the words, the words of a traitor overflow, are, are, are overthrown. So, so what is a wise person supposed to do? Notice, verse, notice the next one, verse 15. It says, folly is bound in the hearts of children. Folly is the opposite of God's wisdom. The word to be bound here is to take a strong rope, chain, and to tie it. The sense is is that children, when they are born, there is something tied to their heart that Solomon is called folly, meaning they're born with a sin nature. That's what he's saying. They're born. It's tied to them. If you've ever had children or ever been around children or ever seen a child or have ever been a child, uh, you know this is true. This is true. They're little sinners. And it's bound in them. It's like pre-programmed. So so what are we supposed to do with that? Because, Because left on check... That folly can grow and grow and grow, and they can go into these devastating things. So so what's the responsibility? The the commitment of the parent to be faithful to God, but then notice what it says, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. The job of the parent is to drive that folly from them, is to break the child of that sin without breaking the child, is to teach the child how to live for the Lord, and, and, and wanting them to live for the Lord. That, that's the idea of the rod here. We're not talking about abuse. We're not talking about mental abuse. We're not talking about just physically dominating a child and bullying a child. What, what we're talking about is disciplining them 
of, of, of causing a punishment when they break a rule, when they break God's law, and, and you teach them the consequence of sin. This is a consequence of sin. Punishment is a consequence of sin. It's funny, uh, my dad used to say that uh, when, right before we were getting spanking, as he says, I'm going to now get the Board of Education and apply that to the seat of knowledge. And he laughed. Nobody else laughed, uh, especially the kid that was about ready to get spanked, right? We didn't find that funny at all. What's interesting about this verse, though, is, is notice that it says that the rod of discipline drives it, the folly, far from him. So it's not so much that you're beating sense into him, but that you're beating nonsense out of him, right? It, the, the idea is that the punishment is for folly. That's, what, that's what's being punished, is folly, it's not just that the kid's being annoying, because kids are annoying. It's that they're being punished because they're doing something foolish as defined by God. A lot could be said about this rod of discipline. Uh, I think we're all, well, a lot of us are adult enough to know that discipline doesn't always look the same to each child, and each child should be disciplined on an individual basis, right? But this is something that is pointed towards the folly. And then notice verse 16. It says, whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. It's an interesting thing, just talking about the folly that's bound up in a child, talking about the words of a traitor, not following God's word. And then it, it, this section ends with extortion of the poor. And bribery to the rich, thinking that that type of lifestyle will bring success. That's the type of fault that's bound up in the heart of a child and of a fool. And, and God's word and, and parental discipline teaches them that this, this will only lead to folly. So we've spent about two years so far in the book of Proverbs, starting chapter 1, verse 1. We've, we've read every single verse up to this point. We are concluding the largest section in the book of Proverbs. We did it, right? And what's interesting is when I look at Proverbs and this section of Proverbs of this compare and contrast of the righteous and the wise and the the wicked and the fool, and, and the way that one gets wisdom is so different than like the world's definition of wisdom, Right? And, and how one gets wisdom. I don't know if you've seen in movies, it's, it's something that's in movies a lot where people want wisdom, and so what do they do? They go find some guy who lives up in the Himalaya mountains, and they travel years in snow-covered mountains to go ask the guy one question, you know, like, why do we park in driveways and drive in parkways? You know, the big questions of life. Why do hot dog packages come in 10, but buns only come in 8? You know, those big Big questions that really haunt us when we're sleeping. And we ask the guy, and some guy sits up in a mountain that apparently has the worst road and cell service ever, gives an answer, and they walk down going, wow, I talked to the wisest guy. And you would go, one, if you really wanted wisdom, why wouldn't you already talk to somebody who walked up there? What questions did you ask? Oh, I had the same question. What was his answer? That's a lot more wiser, right? It's smarter. But that's the picture, right? The picture is that wisdom is, is unaccessible and it takes a lot of work and you have to climb to someone who, who's, who's, who's uh, taken away from the world. 
And what we found in the book of Proverbs is the complete opposite. That wisdom is absolutely accessible. It's accessible because it's found in God's word. It's found in God. And God is accessible. Therefore, it's accessible. Doesn't mean that it's easy. Doesn't mean that it's easily won. It's something that's hard won. It's something that does take time. It's something that's developed, of course. But there's a couple other things that we've learned about wisdom. Uh, We've realized that wisdom is not just mere observation, but these are deep theological, spiritual truths. We realize that there is a polarity. You are either walking wisely or you're walking foolishly. You can't, do this, you can't do both at the same time. You are either wise or you're a fool. We've learned about the application of knowledge, right? We, we've dealt with a lot of application these past two years, right? Thinking of this section of here, here's the application. This is what it looks like. This is what wisdom looks like. Here's the end product of wisdom, a lot of times when we talk about wisdom, we talk about the front part, right? The theological stuff. This is talking about the back part, the actual where the rubber meets the road. I think the greatest takeaway, at least for me, studying the book or studying this section, next week we're going to go off into the next section. But studying this section is this, is that the undercurrent of every single one of these Proverbs deals with the fear of the Lord. And that if I don't take God seriously and I don't take his word seriously, then I have no shot of becoming wise. And that wisdom starts with my relationship with the Lord and how I view him. It is a shame. It's a shame how many times in my own life I didn't view God with, with a sense of respect and reverence that was due him. It's a shame that in my own life there's times where I thought that God was kind of like that buddy that you invite over for nachos to watch the game. Not the sovereign creator. It's a shame that there are times that I've listened to the advice of others, either equal to or above what God has to say. Even though I preach week in and week out of the sufficiency of Jesus and the sufficiency of his word, I've realized how easy it is, even having that as a hallmark of something that I really believe in, how easily that can be changed and manipulated and how that easily can be augmented because of people outside and that this is something that's a constant check am i fearing the lord am i fearing him am i taking him serious am i taking his word serious do i see god and do i see his word as sufficient for me now that's a constant daily check now So next week, we're going to go into the next section. We've been through the hardest section of Proverbs. We can all say amen for that. We are now going to an easier sections where there's a lot more verses and the thoughts are not so over here, over there, over here. But I pray that the Lord will use this section of Proverbs and will, will, uh, that he has taught us wisdom and folly and that we would choose a life that's honoring to the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord give us the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for wisdom that's found in your word. We thank you that your wisdom is accessible because you are accessible because your word's accessible. And that we don't have to climb some mountain, some guy sitting cross-legged to give us answers. So very thankful for uh, the truth that is found here. And we just pray, Father, that as we finish out the book of Proverbs, and we go into these next sections, 
that you will continue to uh, teach us, continue to illuminate our, our minds to the texts, and that we would, uh, that you would teach us to number our days so that we may honor and glorify you with them. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen.